Amen. That's true. At the end of the day, all we really have is Jesus. Everything else is smoke and shadow. Amen. And uh, Saul, King Saul is going to find that out today in a big way. Last week in the story of King Saul, God had boxed him in to this impossible situation where he literally felt like God had abandoned him and he had no other choice but to be disobedient. But today, we're going to find out what God was really up to behind the scenes, doing something more remarkable than Saul could even possibly imagine. So if you would, and you're able, would you please stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word? This is 1 Samuel chapter 14, 1 through 23. Now on the day Jonathan, on one, one day Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And within the passes, by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozez, the name of the other was Senah. And one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, the other on the south in front of Gibah. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men. We will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come up, come down to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. And so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes that they've been hiding themselves in. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And so Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people and the garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah, Benjamin, looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone up from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And so Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. 
And now while Saul was talking to the priest, and the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. And so Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into their camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. And so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, and what it tells us, Lord, what it tells us about who we are, uh, but more importantly, Lord, what it tells us about who you are and what our only hope is. And so we pray, Lord, that we would see that today and that we would see the beauty of Jesus and your salvation, Lord, as you give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word and as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Let me start out and share with you a poem that I've always secretly loved. You'll see why secretly. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. And beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. Don't you love that? Look at that. See? See that response? Does that make your blood just pump through your veins? You cannot be an American. <laughs> For real. Or a Brit or British from where that came from. And not just get all jacked up when you hear that. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. <laughs> that is what we want to be true. Is what I want to be true more than anything else. That kind of power where I can look fear and death and the world and the faith and say to it, you cannot defeat me. Right? Yes. You feeling it? Well, here's the... <laughs> problem with that, at the end of this, the last stanza, what the author, uh, William Ernest Henley, is really saying is that not even God can defeat me. He's saying when he says, uh, it matters not how straight the gate, that's the King James version of the narrow gate to heaven. And when he says, 
uh, or how charged with punishments the scroll he's talking about the books at the final judgment. And so basically what he's saying is, I don't care that God says that there is a narrow road to heaven that is only by faith in Christ. I don't care that there are scrolls of judgments against me. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul and not even God can conquer me. When you read it like that, it gets a little scarier. I don't like that about it. Uh, In the history, look, the history of this poem, you read the history of this poem, they always laud uh, the famous victors and revolutionaries who have used this as their motivation. Uh, Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela, Barack Obama have quoted this passage. and, 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 And so when you read the history books, it's talking about it uses, he talks about the leaders who have used this passage to go on to great victories, and it's true of them. But what the history books leave out are the countless thousands of people who have used this as their rallying cry and marched straight into humiliating defeat and even death. And there's far more of them. Nor does it tell you that these are the final words of people like Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma bomber and the death and destruction that he wrought. He said those words, uh, those were his last words before he was executed. And so that tells us something. Tells us something, shouldn't it? Is that even though we desperately want to be the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul, the reality is that more often than not, and most of the time, we're not. There are all kinds of circumstances that hit in the world that challenge us and that defeat us. And though all we make the best of what we've got and do the best we can, none of us have been able to claim total mastery over the universe. And that's the spot uh, that King Saul is in really here. He has cast off all authority, even God's authority. Uh, And he is now the master of his fate. And he is the captain of his soul. But he is also facing a professional military force that outnumbers him 500 to 1. Now, if you were going to bet, or if you were going to guess, which category is Saul going to fall in? The category of the victorious leaders who use that poem uh, as a rallying cry to victory? Or is he going to join the countless thousands of those who sink into defeat based on those odds. Well, as it turns out, Saul wins. But it's not because he's the master of his fate. It's because he serves and we serve a God who is so incredibly merciful and so full of love that he still comes in and saves his people even in the midst of us being so stubborn and prideful that we want to reject him, that we want to abandon him and go our own way. And so the big lessons, here's the big lessons from uh, this chapter, what the Holy Spirit wants us to know more than anything else, is that, is that pride forces us to repeat our mistakes, but repentance turns to God's power and faith follows into his victory. Let me read that again. Pride forces us to repeat our mistakes, but repentance turns to God's power and faith follows into his victory. Let's do those one at a time.
First, that pride forces us to repeat our mistakes. Uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have this saying, they have this saying, that a uh, definition of insanity that says insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. What the, and the idea behind that is what sane person, what sane person would, would know that something, that they've done, made, they made a decision that ended in complete disaster, like engaging in drugs and alcohol, uh, and, and seeing how it turned out, would go back and do the same thing over again. Why would you do that, knowing that it's going to be a train wreck? Well, Saul shows us why that is. Look at what's happening here with King Saul. The situation is uh, that he has been completely cut off by Philistine, the Philistine army. All of his re- reinforcements are to the north. They can't get to him. They have 300,000 men. He's been whittled down to 600 men. They're a professional military force. His army only has farm tools except for Saul and Jonathan, who have swords. And the situation is going from bad to worse. And now Samuel, who is the word of God, who is bringing the wisdom and the knowledge of God to Saul, has left him, and Saul is completely on his own. And look, if you look at verse 3, this is super important. Look who Saul is sitting with. He is sitting with the rejected priestly line. He is sitting with Ahijah, who was uh, the son of Phineas, who was the evil, corrupt priest in, in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Who is, he is the grandson of Eli, who was the, other, the, the corrupt high priest of Israel. And this is super important. Why does the narrator tell us this? The narrator tells us this because he wants to call our attention back to what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where Israel had been defeated in battle because they had basically abandoned God and they took the Ark of the Covenant, which was the holy presence of God on the earth, and and instead of, uh, of, uh, what they did with that Ark is they took it from where it should have been and brought it out in front of the armies of Israel as like a magic trick, as a talisman in order to defeat the Philistines. And you remember what happened. Total failure. They were defeated again. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, the most precious thing in all of Israel, and took it into captivity and enslaved Israel under their reign. Unmitigated disaster. Everybody knew about it. Saul... It, uh, 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 this priest, Ahijah, uh, the rejected priestly line, Saul, everybody knew what an awful thing that had been. And yet, when Saul sees action in the field, when he sees movement in the field, he gets scared. He doesn't know that the Philistines are destroying themselves. He thinks they're preparing for attack. And having been cut off from the power of God, having been cut off from the word of God, being on his own and completely under pressure, he says to himself, maybe this time it'll be different. And he calls up for the ark to do the same thing again. Isn't that crazy? Why would he do that, man? Because it was the best option that he had. 
being cut off from God's power, cut off from God's knowledge, cut off from God's wisdom, that was really the best option that he had. And so even though he knew it was a total disaster last time, he had no choice but to try to convince himself, man, if we just do it a little bit different this time, if we're a little more careful, maybe we'll put it off to the left side instead of right out front, we'll put a better guard on it, but this time, maybe this time it's going to work. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done something again? Have you ever decided to try something again that you knew was a total unmitigated disaster last time you tried it? Now, alcoholics and addicts, we're famous for this. We literally wrote the book on it. (laughs) The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is all about this, about how the psychological terror that the alcoholic or the addict experiences sober eventually becomes so uncomfortable that we'll convince ourselves that going back to drugs and alcohol will be a solution. This time it'll be different, and here's how. And the Here's the crazy thing that I've noticed as I've moved into ministering more to the broader church. I've discovered that that same principle is in effect in almost everybody's life. It may not be as dramatic or as destructive as alcoholism and addiction or the, 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 the solution. Really, alcohol and drugs are the solution for the addict from the psychological terror and the anger that they feel from being sober. It may not be that dramatic and destructive, but everybody's got a thing. Everybody's got a thing that they put their trust in. And that thing, whatever it is, the promise of that thing is always better than the reality. And at the end of it, it leaves you a little more worn out and a little less hopeful. But in the absence of any other better option, what we do is we end up living what Thoreau called that quiet life of desperation where we have no other option but to try to make that thing work. Maybe it's your career. <sighs> you know, and maybe you, you do get a lot of joy out of it. Maybe you're lucky enough to have a career where you really serve people and you're in line with God's created order in that event. You, you are created to serve others and you get some joy out of it. But at the end of the day, if, it's, if, there's, if it, the big quotient of it is me, my advancement, my success, it's eventually going to start wearing out. And we get to that point where we get into the cycle of sadness, repeat, sadness, repeat, sadness, repeat, until we get to the point where we live this life of repeating sin or repeating character defect or repeating our mistakes to the point where that's really become, it becomes the only life we know. It becomes the only life we can even imagine. We slowly drift into the point where we drift out of the light of God and, and, and darkness becomes the only light we know until we believe that the darkness is itself light. Saul here is in this great and terrible moment in the history of Israel. He is staring down death in the face of this overwhelming power.
power of this Philistine military machine. He is right now the master of his fate, the captain of his soul, and yet he is also fresh out of options and forced to repeat the only thing that he knows, which is going to fail. Luckily, God saves him from making that mistake at the last moment, but that's what he's going for, repeating the mistake. Now, you might say, why? Why would God do this? Why would God let him get in that situation? It's God's mercy. God allows us to get into that cycle so that we can break it, to to experience the misery of it, because the reality is everybody's got one more option on the table that if we aren't so stubborn and prideful, we can always take. And that is to turn to God and ask Him to help. Ask for God's power to come through. That's what we call repentance. And so the second thing is that repentance turns to God's power. Pride forces us to repeat our mistakes, but repentance turns to God's power. Now, if you, like, listen, 99 of 100 sermons on this passage goes like this. Jonathan has great faith. Jonathan acts out in his great faith and conquers unbeatable odds. Go out and be like Jonathan. Why? Why do so many sermons like that? Because that's what I want. I want to be Jonathan, man. I want to be the guy that's like, what's up? Walking into 300,000 Philistine soldiers and just start swinging. Because I'm fearless. Because <laughs> I'm brave. Because <laughs> I'm sanctified. I'm holy. <laughs> but, if I'm honest, if I were honest... If I were honest, given the choice between comfort and kingdom, most often I choose comfort. You give me a choice between evangelism and the couch? (laughs) You want to give me a choice between dedicating the Sabbath and entertainment, leisure, whatever else I can fill it with. You're going to give me a choice between serving the poor and my comfort. I'm going to pick comfort, repeat, leisure, repeat, entertainment, repeat. And it brings forth the fruit of anxiety and anger and fear. And quiet desperation. The truth is, and here's the bad news, I want to be Jonathan. I want to go in swinging. But the reality is, I'm more like Saul. I'm way more like Saul than Jonathan, but the good news is, there is somebody who's a whole lot like Jonathan in the Bible. There is somebody who has and did go in swinging. Now, to figure out who that is, There's a principle, foundational principle 
of biblical interpretation. This is, we get this from Jesus himself. In Luke 24, Matthew 5, John chapter 5, Jesus basically says everything in the Old Testament is a story or a picture of me and what I'm going to do. He doesn't give us any room to think that we are the, we are the hero of the story. He says everywhere, Old Testament to New Testament, every story is a picture of me. A picture of Jesus who is the hero of the story. Now look how similar Jonathan is to Jesus. Jonathan has this unshakable faith in God. Jonathan has laser-like focus on God's will and the mission that he's been assigned. Jonathan walks into a world of enemies and certain death. Jonathan spearheads the attack. God steps in with supernatural power, rescues Jonathan from death, defeats the enemies of Israel, and liberates his people from slavery and death. Boom. And that, in a nutshell, is the big difference between the fake gospel and the real gospel. The real big difference between the fake good news and the real good news. It's the difference. This the difference between pop culture religion and the beautiful truth of historic Christianity is who is the hero of the story. In pop culture religion, in the false gospel, you get to be Jonathan. You're the hero of the story. You're the one who crushes. You're the one who goes in and defeats everything. You get the glory. You win the battle. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. And what that does, it distorts Christianity into being more about you than about Jesus. It has to necessarily distort Christianity and to be about winning victories in this life, winning over life, because nobody beats the ultimate enemy. Uh, And those battles are ironically similar to the American dream and what culture, Western culture says is the good life, is what is dying for which are oftentimes fundamentally opposed to what God says is the good life and what is worth dying for. How to be a successful fill-in-the-blank. How to... uh, The gospel is often still in the background, but it's not preached. It's assumed, but it's more about how you can be a success in this life now. And that's not the gospel. And, you know, spiritual maturity then becomes your emotional response to worship or your success in this life. Rather than your ability to engage in long-suffering, rather than your ability to return love for evil, rather than your ability to forgive, rather than your ability to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit and look like Jesus. And the fallout from that. The fallout from that is the type A personalities and the super successful life get celebrated as heroes of the faith and regular Christians like us get discouraged and wash out and the church itself becomes atheist maker. But historic Christianity is different because historic Christianity recognizes 
There are battles that you cannot win. There are battles you will not win. There are deep defects of character and sin in your life that you will struggle with until you die. And no matter how successful you may be, nobody beats death. And so Christianity says Jesus fights the battle. Christianity says Jesus gets the glory. Christianity says Jesus gets to be the captain of your soul. But with that, it's good. Because with that, Jesus also shares with you what the author of Hebrews calls the power of uh, the power of an indestructible life. God, through Jesus and our faith in him, gives us indestructible life. So it's not even about this life. It's about the life to come. And then, in response to that, as an act of worship, not an act of self-preservation, we worship and glorify God by being obedient and keeping the law, then we find that the law is actually the definition of love. We find that we become in line with God's created order, and that then produces joy. And so once we've turned to God, once we've made that step and believed in Him, how do we respond from that point to God's victory over sin and death for us? And the answer is through faith. Faith follows Him into the victory. Now look, in this story, there's five categories of people. And they're all important. The first category are the Philistines. Look at verse 20. This is what it says about the Philistines at the end of the day. Behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. You remember a movie called Jacob's Ladder? It came out in 1990. It was a movie about the Vietnam War uh, where the United States Army had created a drug that was supposed to increase the aggression of its soldiers. And in a trial experiment, they gave it to a platoon of soldiers in Vietnam, and the effects were so strong and so startling, they not only increased their aggression a hundredfold, it also erased any compassion, any sense of love, until the soldiers uh, turned on one another and killed one another. And that's kind of the underlying thesis of the story. That's what's happening here. You see that every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. People think the Spirit of God is only contained within the church. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the Spirit of God is the stabilizing factor over the entire world. That any goodness that exists in the world, any justice, any beauty, anything that exists like that in the world is because of the stabilizing and the controlling influence of God's Spirit on the world, holding it together. And when God completely removes that presence, we become what we would be without it. And the Philistines turn on each other and slaughter each other because it's nothing but battle of the fittest. 
You don't want to be that group. You don't want to be that group. There's no faith. There's no repentance. You don't want to be that group because one day God will remove his sustaining hand. And when he does, you don't want to be there. But the good news is that in the wake of this victory, God is drawing all these different kinds of people in behind him. Look at all these different categories. There's first, there's the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines. These are the traitors. These are the guys who had, the Hebrews who had left the Hebrew army and gone over, defected and joined the Philistine army and were fighting with them. Listen to what it says. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the Philistine camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites. And what happens to them? God pulls them in. So maybe that's you. Maybe you walked away. Maybe you've been fighting against God and it's time to come back. The second group are the Israelites. Look at verse 22. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, and so they too followed hard after them into the battle. These are the guys who had hid themselves in rocks and caves and even left the country. They were like, whoa, God won. The victory's won. I'm going to get in on this. And they came in out of the rocks and joined the battle. Maybe you've been hiding out. Maybe you've been staying away from church. Uh, Maybe you've been overwhelmed and maybe now it's time to get back in the fight. Third group, or the fourth group, is Saul himself and the people who were with him. Verse 20, and then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. Maybe you've been trusting in the wrong things and now it's time to start trusting in the right things. And get in the fight. And the last one, last one is the best. This is my favorite guy. One of maybe my favorite guy in the whole Bible. Next to the garrison demoniac, who I like resonate with more than anybody else in the Bible. I love this guy. You can't be Jonathan. That's Jesus. But you can be the armor bearer. Listen to what this guy does. Listen to this guy. Jonathan says to him, check it out. We're going to crawl up that cliff. And me and you, we're going to attack 300,000 professional military. And what does this guy say? Let's do this. <laughs> he says, do all that is in your heart. Do as you with. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. What did he say? What did he say? He just said, he just said, your will be done, your kingdom come in different language, right? He follows. He's as close to Jesus as he can be. You read the story. What happens is Jonathan goes up. He stabs the guys. The guys fall down and the armor bearer comes behind him. Now that the victory is already done, he's like, what's up? And he takes him out behind Jonathan. I know that's graphic. These are bad guys. But the story is someone so close to Jesus who's winning the battle out in front of him that he's following right in the wake of his trail, following up on that. And I want to be that guy. 
man, I can't be Jonathan, but I could be that guy. That's the guy I want to be. I want to be the guy when Jesus says, hey, your power is not enough. You can't beat sin and death. Why don't you trust me and receive the power of an indestructible life? I want to be the guy that says, do with me all that is in your heart. Do with me as you wish. I am with you heart and soul. And Jesus says, hey, let's start working out those deep places of hurt that cause you to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. I want to be the guy that says, do with me as you will. I am with you heart and soul. And Jesus says, hey, let's go downtown and do this crazy thing and plant this church and serve at this church and fill this old building up with new life. I want to be the guy that says, do with me whatever you want. I am with you heart and soul. Jesus says, hey, let's start a community group at your house so that you can grow your faith into something beautiful with other believers. I want to be the guy that says, do with me what you will. I am with you heart and soul. When Jesus says, hey, let's go serve the homeless poor. Let's bring some foster kids into your house. Let's start a Bible study for Syrian refugees. Let's go make friends with the gay couple next door. I want to be the guy, just like this guy, that says, do with me all that is in your heart. Do with me as you wish, because I am with you, heart and soul. I want to be that guy, don't you? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Way too often we're not that guy. But we know that the power of your spirit says we could be. At least we can move in that direction. So Lord, we pray that you would make us a church that is very unlike what our culture says is the good life and what our culture says is willing to die for. And I pray that you would make us so sold out for you and your vision of the good life of uh, sacrificial service, um, of a life of evangelism, a life of rhythm of prayer and spiritual disciplines, seeking to be closer and closer to you. Lord, I pray that that would be what we seek. And I pray that you would use those things and you would work in and through us to make something beautiful out of us and to show your beauty to the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.